Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized! Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Get Metsmerized podcast, presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, and this week Mike and I welcome Mets beat reporter Tim Healy of Newsday to the show. We caught up with Tim about the latest from the Mets president of baseball operations search, discussed the team's 2021 offensive struggles, what the looming work stoppage means for this year's hot stove, and much more. So without further ado, here's Tim Healy. We're joined now by Newsday's Tim Healy, beat writer for the Mets. Tim, thanks so much for joining us tonight, man. I am happy to, Sal. Thank you guys for having me. Awesome. And, you know, we're obviously in the offseason here, but, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of things to get to. It feels like uh, half the franchise is vacant for openings that they got to fill with a short amount of time. So let's just jump right into it, man. I know, uh, you know, the stuff came out today about Arnold. Not taking the Mets, uh, Mets job or not being, you know, allowed to interview or whatever. So we just want to hear, you know, your thoughts and all that and what you're hearing about uh, what's been a crazy search. Yeah, it, it, it has been a crazy search. And the, the Matt Arnold one, I think, stung a little bit because when the news, when his, you know, throughout this process, his name is one that has been attached to it in sort of a speculative way. And that's true for Mets GM searches going back to, 2018 when they ended up with Brody Van Wagenen I remember Matt Arnold was mentioned in that context um, so he, he is a highly regarded guy he is a future leader of a baseball operations department for the Brewers or whomever so it seemed like maybe he would be the guy for the Mets ends up not being the case which stinks for the Mets and on and on they go to you know right 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 down their list which is uh, however many guys deep at this point. So um, it's, it stinks for the Mets that they that they didn't really get too far down. Um, but it is what it is. And just more on that, you know, I, talking about like being you know at the bottom of the Mets list now, it just feels like everyone that uh, you know was on their list they're crossing <laughs> off and can't even seem to get you know an interview with or whatever is. Guys in good positions in smaller markets, maybe not wanting to come here with the added pressure. Is it owners? not wanting maybe Steve Cohen to run rough shot over the league as soon as he comes in. So they're trying to make sure they hold on to the, the talent that they have. What do you hear? And like, you know, what, what's the vibe like as far as, cause it just feels very abnormal, even for the Mets. I think it could be any and all of those things and perhaps a different reason or a different mixture of reasons in any given case. Right. We know with David Stearns, for example, uh, Brewers owner Mark Atanasio was never going to let that happen. So in that case, the smaller market club is holding on to its well-proven head of baseball operations. In the case of Mike Gersh of the Cardinals, we saw from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch today, Derek Gould reported that the Mets inquired there and Mike Gersh was not interested. So speaking generally, you know, I don't, I don't know about the Mike Gersh, Gersh case in particular, but speaking generally, a lot of times you'll see guys get extensions out of it, which sounds like it was the case with Matt Arnold, according to John Heyman earlier, or they, you know, extensions or promotions, whatever the case may be. 
Um, and then there are, as far as why guys wouldn't be interested in the job, it could be a lot of things. It could be comfort in their current situation where they are not the number one guy, as you mentioned, in their smaller markets. They work for good, functioning, successful teams. Um, lucky them. And, uh, and the, the other pieces of it are, you know, and this is coming from people I've talked to in the industry, some GM candidate types and some not. There is maybe not concern necessarily, but there are questions about Sandy Alderson's influence. Sandy has come out and said straight up that he is not going to be, he does not want to be involved in baseball operations. I think there's skepticism from people. If not Sandy over you, then perhaps Sandy's voice and influence under you in the form of Brent Alderson. Again, I don't know if that's legitimate or not in the actual workings of the Mets, but that is how people feel. That is, that is a thought process that exists externally. Um, and then there, w- w- one of the other things is, you know, Steve Cohen himself is a, still a little bit of an unknown as far as being an owner, kind of owner he is. 12 months for an owner is not a very large sample size. You know, he's had one offseason and it was not even really a full offseason, one trade deadline, one season. And it was, as we all know, an extremely eventful 12 months. So again, I don't want to say concerns necessarily, but questions about what kind of owner, what kind of manager Steve Cohen is, how involved he is, things like that. Um, So those are some of the moving pieces as people are approached about this job. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to add into what Tim said um, and kind of mirror a lot of what he said. Um, I've talked to people in other front offices that are, like Tim said, it might not in actuality that Alderson's still going to be making decisions, baseball decisions, but there's hesitancy from candidates because they think that chance is still there. And like Tim said, then you're in the Alderson sandwich, which we mentioned previously (laughs) with Bryn below you too. So I, I think that is playing with some candidates and I think the Cohen thing is an unknown too. So, I mean, you don't really know what you're getting into and, on top of that, you have all the issues that they've had the last year with Mickey Calloway coming up, Jared Porter. I mean, Zach Scott is still on leave right now. Um, Ryan Ellis and all the other issues. So I, it hasn't exactly been a banner year for the Mets organization and uh, the type of job you would go running to, which, which stinks because I think if the Mets had an uneventful year and still – had Cohen being the new owner, um, some of this off the field stuff, I think, I think it'd be a much more desirable job. But as we saw even last off season with Sandy kind of looming there, they had trouble last off season too, trying to get people to come in. So I, I think that's a thing that's looming. I know um, from the people I've talked to and the athletic and other outlets reported today that Steve has taken over the search for president of baseball ops. He's, he's the guy that is making the calls. Now he's the guy that called Scott Harris and talked to him from the giants before Harris turned him down. And uh, he's the one that talked to Theo. He's kind of leading it now. And I think, I think that's probably the right thing to do, especially if you want to alleviate the concerns of uh, Alderson over the top. So I think, yeah, uh, some of these guys were unrealistic anyway. I don't think Theo, Billy or Stearns, all those guys are long shots after that. 
Cohen really liked Harris from what I was told and was really hoping that was something that was going to work out. And we haven't heard much from the San Francisco beat or anywhere else about specifics. Um, basically just that he pulled his name. And then after that, they decided they were going to turn right to Arnold. And I think the Mets were very optimistic about Arnold. I, I reported that. And I think they thought this was a guy they were going to get. I know there's been reporting on both sides of this, of how everything went down. But I, I, uh, the Brewers ultimately decided to deny permission. But I, had they even got permission, I don't think in the end Arnold was going to decide to join the Mets for whatever reason. So, yeah, I mean, the Mets are back. They're off. They got the three guys off the top of the list and now kind of the two on the second part of the list that were top-notch are off it too. So it's, it's kind of a, where do you go now? And I find it really interesting to Tim's point, talking about how people are, now almost sounds like people are trying to court uh, Steve Cohen, as far as, you know, looking to see what kind of owner he is. And I, I just find that really interesting because I feel like over the last few years, especially in like big markets, I think I look at like the LA Clippers uh, as the first thing that name that jumps out to me or team, uh, Steve Ballman buys that team. And there was kind of an instant energy put in. People wanted to go there. There again, um, you know, because he was, you know, kind of a big personality and talked about wanting to win a lot. Um, so I find that really interesting that it's it's kind of the opposite in this case, and especially that, you know, being New York, you think people want to jump at it. Does more than anything besides the Sandy Alderson element, which seems to be kind of a real looming thing to all this, you know, could folks be maybe a little nervous as far as, you know, what they've seen the last year uh, with the Mets, as far as, you know, people getting hired and things coming out about them and, and, and that nature, maybe folks don't, you know, they're comfortable in their spots and don't, maybe don't want their, their closets open, so to speak, if they make the move, you think there's any validity to that? Um, the off field misbehavior, you know, sexual harassment, whatever, you know, various variations that we've seen, I can't imagine it helps the Mets case, but I also don't think it's a huge deterrent. I mean, if, if there's somebody out there who would be a candidate for this job who does not want to be because he doesn't want that sort of deep background check, then we're all just better off anyway without that person being seriously considered. Um, I think what is interesting in the first 12 months of Steve Cohen's ownership you know, he brought Sandy in, wiped out that front office on day one, Brody Van Wagenen and most of his inner circle. We've seen some hires and some promotions since then. So now there is most of a front office there. Bryn Alderson and Ian Levin are the assistant GMs. Tommy Tanis, Mark Jermuda on the amateur scouting side. Ben Zosmer from the, hired from the Dodgers runs the analytics. So there are a lot of department heads and pieces. So another piece of the tough sell for would-be candidates is you know, it's kind of hard to get a top-notch person and just slide them in and say, okay, come to this job. Everything else in the front office has been decided for you. You can't hire, or you can only hire minimal front office top lieutenants of your own. So to keep the existing structure and just, you know, put the cherry on top of a head of baseball operations, um, a really attractive, really qualified person um, I think it, you know, that's another among the reasons it can be a tough sell. Gotcha. And, you know, going off of Mike said, as far as, you know, 
pivoting to where, where the Mets go now. Um, who are some folks, you know, currently in the sport working for teams that, that you think, you know, have a shot? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, the guy that sells hot dogs in the loge level. You know, I don't know. <laughs> we want to get your thoughts there. Um, that's a good question. And the most honest answer is I don't know. You know, think back to this time last year, not this time last year, but at this stage last year when the Mets set their sights on a general manager instead of a president of baseball operations, they essentially filtered through this pool of candidates or this tier of candidates, the assistant GMs and things like that, um, and came up with their two favorites, Jared Porter and Zach Scott. And I don't know how many, how many fans really would have picked those two or even been aware of those two. So surely there are many qualified, worthy candidates who would be excellent hires. They're just not being talked about right now. I know that they exist within the infrastructure of 30 front offices uh, or 29 front offices. Um, but, you know, it's like a needle in a haystack at this point as far as trying to guess who. Um, that's if they go the younger route. If, if they wanted to reverse course, and every indication has been that, you know, Steve Cohen wants a younger analytics, analytically inclined type executive, you know, somebody off the analytics factory line, so to speak, uh, where they all like look the same, sound the same, dress the same. Um, if they want to go in the other direction and get a veteran baseball executive with his, you know, team building bona fides, all that stuff, a little more traditional, fine. Dan Duquette is a name that keeps getting mentioned to me um, by people in baseball. And then of course, Brian Sabian, who's gotten a little more buzz publicly, but those guys fit that bill. If the Mets wants to go in that direction, which right now it seems like that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I mean, Sabian's obviously gets impressed because he's written about by three or four Mets beat writers to this point. Like Tim said, I, there hasn't been any talk on the Mets end from what I've heard of them actually being interested in Sabian. May, hey, who knows? This We've already taken a lot of turns in the search already, so I think it's possible that the Mets turn back to that. They haven't to this point. And I think you kind of – I know Sabian has three rings, but he's also – we're talking 2014 is the last time that he was in a position where he was making baseball decisions. So I think that kind of plays into the fact that the Mets haven't shown interest to this point and i mean Dequette is uh same line i mean we're talking about a guy that hasn't been involved in a while too so i would think cohen stays the course and then i mean you're talking a like tim said you're talking needle in a haystack but one guy that gets talked about a lot for jobs is carlos rodriguez from the rays anytime you're poaching a guy from the rays that's a pretty good and he worked he's the vice president of player development Obviously, a uh, strong point for the Rays. Pete Petulia from the Astros is another name that gets thrown there, thrown out there. Um, he's the assistant GM of the Astros, but they they do a GM assistant GM, not a, a Pobo GM. So basically, he's the number two there. So that's another hot commodity. Maybe we don't hear about him this this time, but he's a guy that's going to probably get interviews next year. At the very least, uh, I think one other person we should talk about, too, is uh, Raquel Ferreira from the Red Sox. She's been in their front office for a very long time, and she's their executive VP, assistant general manager there. 
obviously working under Chain Bloom. So, I mean, she's, she's another candidate that I think would be a good idea for the Mets to take a look at. And then, like Tim said, we can talk about other ones uh, that we're not going to, there's going to be names that we haven't heard yet, but kind of, I'm kind of curious that uh, we haven't heard some of the names we did last time with Billy Owens and Michael Hill. Maybe they just flat out told the Mets um, last year in their searches that they, they were fine where, where, where they were Owens with the A's and Hill and, in with major league baseball. So maybe that's why we haven't heard them, but um, Owens is well-respected around the game and he's going to be a president of baseball ops, general manager, the number one guy at some point. Uh, maybe it's in Oakland. Maybe that's why he's staying there because he figures it's going to be there. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the next group of names are that we hear. Um, I think like Tim said, it's probably going to be some names that, haven't even been tied to the Mets or any search at this point. No, it's really interesting. And, you know, Sabian especially to me is interesting because then he's the definition of his, do you want to go with experience or youth? And, you know, I know Cohen wants to win now. He's talked about that three to five year window. So, you know, it's tempting to to bring a guy in like Sabian who has the pedigree and, and, you know, he's been out of the game a few years, like you said, Mike, but still brings that with him. And another maybe caveat to it, uh, Tim, I don't know if you can comment on it. You know, I, I wonder the likelihood if you, you bring in a Sabian, you get a Bruce Bochy that comes along with it. And you talk about experience and stability. You know, that could very well be something that that could, you know, steady the ship as far as for the Mets are concerned, you know, with, uh, you know, two birds with one stone there. But you heard anything on that front, Tim? Not really. No, mostly because I don't think there's a lot of meat on the Brian Sabian bone, at least at the moment. You make a good an interesting point about three to five years. Cohen's window, suddenly two to four years. Should you bring in somebody more experienced to try to win in that window? I think it's worth pointing out that Hein Bloom in Boston in his second season, his first full season, got the Red Sox to the ALCS a lot faster than anybody expected. And this is his first time running a team. So veteran or, uh, you know, being a veteran at it, you know, having experience running a baseball team, doesn't necessarily translate to immediate success. I, there are, you know, look at James Click with the Astros. He inherited a hell of a team, obviously, and, and they haven't really missed a beat since, since he took over and was hired away from the race. So there are the two paths they can go down. But like Mike said, I think it's going to be a, I would expect it to be a, a younger, more analytically inclined guy. Hey, you know, at the end of the day, whatever brings success to the field, I don't care who it is, what it is, doesn't matter. But pivoting off of that to, you know, you sound like Jeff Luna. <laughs> well, that, that's also another name, I guess. I know we've talked about it, but it sounds like uh, nobody wants to touch him with a 10 foot pole, which obviously I understand. Yeah, I'm, 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 on, I'm in that line of thinking as well. <laughs> I hear you. No, and, you know, pivoting off of that to, you know, people who aren't with the Mets to someone who actually is staying with the Mets. Jeremy Hefner's coming back as the Mets pitching coach. We heard, um, wanted to get your thoughts, comments. Have you heard anything from anyone? Uh, I, I know I, I had heard that there was speculation that a few players after the season pitchers went to the, the front office and, um, ownership and, you know, said they really liked Hefner and would like to see him stay. Um, but wanted to get your thoughts. on. I, I thought it was a no brainer. I think on the, on the surface, it, the timing of it, of course, looks a little weird because they don't have a head of baseball operations. They don't have a manager. And here they are making a decision on the pitching coach. But as I explained in my story for Newsday, it was because Hefner had a contract option that needed to be exercised by the end of this month. So they were, it was time sensitive. And like I said, it was, it was sort of a no brainer, an easy call. 
Uh, I have to think that the eventual head of baseball operations and the eventual manager will be just fine having Jeremy Hefner as their pitching coach. It seemed like a good hire two years ago when Brody Van Wagen and picked him. And in the two years since, it's that's proven to be the case. Mets had a really strong pitching staff this year, a lot of good work there. So uh, easy call, good for Jeremy Hefner, good for the Mets, good for the Mets pitchers. Yeah, I mean, I'm right on board with Tim on this one. It, it just seemed like an easy call. And like you said, I know a lot of people are like, well, how are you doing this without having a president or a GM? But like you said, with the timing, they, they didn't really have a choice. But yeah, I th- easy pick. All the pitchers that you talked to from the Mets rave about him. So, I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense. The new gives the new GM, President Baseball Ops, whoever it is, a year to kind of see what he's got on their end and uh, go at it again next year and see what they want to do for pitching coach. No, definitely. Uh, I, I think his body work speaks for itself at this point. You know, he, he did really well with kind of especially this year's time, really not having Jacob DeGrom for half the year and, you know, kind of scrapped together guys at that point, you know, to, to replace him. And, and overall, the pitching was uh, pretty solid, like you said. So I think that's a no brainer. Like hopefully guys can stay on the field and they, they get him a couple of more starting pitches, but that's a story for another day, I guess. Transitioning off of that. And we're talking about, you know, eventually manager that he's going to work with uh, one that just was let go by the Mets uh, interviewed for the San Diego Padres job, uh, Luis Rojas. Uh, they brought him in. You know, I wanted to get your your thoughts on that, Tim, what you're here. And if that if there's anything serious towards that and, you know, talk about that, that vacant managerial position in Queens and some names that you think that that could be candidates. Good for Ross getting the interview with the Padres. I think it, um, you know, nobody would be surprised or will be surprised if and when he lands another job, you know, whether it's as a major league manager immediately or some uh, in-between job with the Mets or anybody else. So uh, not surprised that the Padres interviewed him, would not be surprised if he got the job. Um, I thought the Mets were in Rojas were sort of in a tough spot with each other because I, on its face, I don't think Rojas deserved to lose his job. I thought he did a perfectly fine job. But and, but I get it from the Mets' perspective where they want to be able to tell their would-be head of baseball operations, hey, you can pick your own manager. So I understood where the Mets were coming from. You know, I know that the Mets extended an undefined job offer to Rojas to remain with the organization in a to-be-defined role. Um, but – like everybody pretty much expected at the time he was let go. Uh, other teams came calling, which makes sense. Um, as far as the Mets opening, you know, I really haven't heard any names linked to it. And that's because the guy, the person who's going to be making that decision is also unknown to this point. Um, so it's really, you know, hard to even speculate about which guys uh, who, who's going to be considered for the Mets manager's spot until we know who will be choosing that person. What Tim said, I mean, it's people are going to throw names out there. The easiest right. one and one you see all the time right now is Carlos Beltran. Mets fans <laughs> are still caught up on Carlos Beltran. I mean, I would highly doubt Beltran ever comes back to manage the Mets. That just that seems just like an odd thing to do after the year the Mets have had. I, I know people pointed to Cora, but that that's a totally different circumstances. So, yeah, I think we can. I'm not sure who it's going to be, but I think we can cross Beltran off the list. And then, yeah, talking about Rojas, uh, I agree with Tim. Um, under most circumstances, Rojas is managing the Mets again in 2022. Um, I think just because of the situation they were in where they wanted to overhaul the entire front office, 
that that would have been another another reason for candidates to be like, well, why is Rojas still there? Why did you pick up his option? Now I don't get to pick my manager. So I think that would have just been another hurdle for the Mets. Um, Otherwise, I think, yeah, I think it's pretty tough to judge a manager off a year and a half, um, a year and a half after he was given the job at the last moment and then dealt with a pandemic. Um, I think, yeah, I think bullpen, some questionable bullpen moves aside, I think Roas is a fine big league manager, and I think he's going to be a big league manager again sometime soon and probably for quite a while. Yeah, no, Mike. If I could just echo one thing Mike said about the Beltron stuff, that's agreed. Uh, You know, think back to the hiring process that led to Beltron. Beltron was a dark horse, outside-the-box candidate type bring back the former stars manager. And I think it surprised a lot of people when they landed on him. So for that, for him to come back, he would have to, he already convinced one owner and one GM that he should be Mets manager. (laughs) Now he's going to have to convince a different GM and a different owner to be Mets manager. Never mind all of the baggage that comes along with on both sides, the Mets side and the Beltron side. So um, for all those reasons, I'm also a, Profoundly skeptical that uh, Beltran would be a fit for the Mets again. No, definitely. Mike's made the point in the past on the show that you know, the, as far as the difference between Alex Cora and AJ Hinch compared to Beltran, they both managed in the big leagues already. So that was definitely an easy transition. You know, him going, I know that's kind of been the more norm now as far as younger guys, uh, you know, ex players jumping right in. But yeah, I'm, and if he ever does become a manager, I'm sure he's going to have to be riding that major league bus for a while, putting in his dues and such. But another name that I'm just interested about that I'd really like to see the Mets, um, you know, jump on eventually when they hire someone to make that decision um, is Mike Schilt, you know, formerly the Cardinals. Um, I'm sure the Padres and a bunch of other teams that have openings are going to, you know, try and clamor after him as well. Have you heard anything about like the departure there in St. Louis? It seemed, you know, kind of abrupt. I know they said it was like philosophical differences or whatever, but, you know, have you heard any, have you heard anything as far as like what went on there? And, And do you think that there could be a, you know, obviously speculating, um, but the, maybe the chance that the Mets could bring someone like that in. I think it would make sense for the Mets to consider him or at least do their own investigating about what really happened in St. Louis. I, I have not done that. Um, you know, I've, I've had my hands full of the Mets as it is, um, but I think it's, it's, it's worth asking at least if, if you're the Mets. Mike Schilt did a good job with the Cardinals, went to, to the playoffs, had a hell of a run this year near the end of the year in which the Mets were victimized early on. And so, yeah, for all those reasons, I think any team with a managerial opening is going to consider him. Um, the St. Louis stuff was sort of a red flag. If he was, you know, not the front office puppet that the front office wanted or isn't fully on board of analytics, which is more or less a prerequisite for a lot of front offices these days. Um, you know, I could see why that would rule him out for the Mets or for whomever. Um, but it's it's worth investigating, at least. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, assuming that the Padres don't hire him because he did interview there, I think whenever the Mets get settled, I think he's at least a guy that you have to bring in. And I'm sure whoever in the front office is doing work right now, besides looking for a Pobo, is uh, – is already investigating shield and kind of what happened there with the Cardinals, because I mean, it is curious. I mean, 
as many games as he won, um, 17 in a row this year is apparently not enough. So, yeah, I mean, there's got to be more to the story. Maybe it is as simple as the Cardinals wanted him to integrate analytics more into um, their game plan. Maybe it's as simple as that. And like uh, Tim said, that's going to be tough for him to sell to any team at this point. So, yeah, but at the very least, the Mets got to give that a look once it comes that time. You know, absolutely. You know, you know, to, to, to close on the shill caveat, uh, he, he comes from the, the, the book of the Joe Maddens and the Terry Collins of the world that didn't play professional baseball, you know, kind of made his bones through the minors and that kind of stuff, which I find interesting, but you know, remains to be seen who knows what happened when he left. I guess that'll all come out in time and hopefully the Mets hire someone uh, soon enough that they can bring him in. But, uh, you know, transition off of that, uh, I saw that the silver slugger awards came out the other day. There was uh, a single Met on it and his <laughs> name was Jacob deGrom. Uh, obviously he was the best hitter on the team besides Alonzo and Nimmo pretty much all year. Um, I wanted to just talk to you about that a little bit and, and just in general, the Mets offensive struggles from really the last two years now, um, and this year, especially and, and kind of, you know, where they can go from here. I thought the reveal of the silver cycle slugger finalists the other day was, uh, the latest scathing indictment of the 2021 Mets offense and pretty much all you need to know <laughs> about their offense. You know, actually the silver slugger possibility for the had crossed my mind late in the year or really in the middle of the year before we learned he was out for the rest of the year. Um, and I thought, wow, it'd be cool with how well DeGrom had, was hitting early in the year if he became the last pitcher to win a silver slugger, assuming the DH does come to the NL as of next season. So I, I thought that'd be really cool. And then he, then he missed so much time and never made it back. I thought, nah, like he probably isn't going to win because he just didn't pitch in or play enough. Managers and coaches who voted apparently deemed him worthy of being a finalist at least. Um, so good for him. I still think that'd be a fun little footnote to history. Um, but, but as far as the Mets offense on the whole, uh, I think there's a lot that goes into it. One is, you know, if you ask the Mets hitters, the fact that they play in pitcher-friendly city field doesn't help. Um, they bemoan that openly a lot. That said, they also weren't very good on the road. And a lot of guys had down years after having good years previously at city field. So you can't just blame the home field stuff. Switching hitting coaches and perhaps languages, hitting languages mid early in the season surely doesn't help. You saw some guys start to come around late and you wonder if maybe, you know, they got on the same page or found something with Hugh Quattlebaum or whomever, you know, they'll be faced, they'll be working with new hitting coaches yet again in 2022. Um, and, and then sometimes it's as simple as guys sometimes will have down years and the 2021 Mets had several guys who had down years, the worst years of their careers. Um, is there a little bit of unluckiness to that, that all of their bad years lined up and they were a miserable lineup for basically the entire season? Yeah, I, I could buy that as a factor. Um, you know, you don't expect Jeff McNeil to struggle as much as he did. I think in the case of him in particular, he, you know, everybody knows it's pretty obvious that he gets in his own head. He gets extremely openly frustrated. And I think he just got even more so than normal down on himself down on his situation with the Mets. He got his position changed midway through the year. You know, J.D. Davis was hurt. Dom Smith was hurt. 
those player roles. So it's, it's a little bit different in everybody's case, but um, you know, th- those are all some of the things that go into it. And definitely. And one thing I just wanted to like touch on in particular, and obviously, you know, you're talking about how you know, guys, they have down years and from the Mets case, they kind of had a, you know, a bunch of once, and you know, that's the sport. It is what it is. But one thing that, especially from 2020 that and, and 2021, 2021, that was so alarming, at least to me, was how poor they hit with runners and scoring position yeah um you know i I know later in the year they picked it up a little bit um but you know overall is is that an approach thing it it looked as though maybe like conforto's a different case because he super struggled but a lot of the guys have felt like just were not aggressive enough um with runners on base a lot of fast rolls early in counts letting you know go by and before you know it you you'd look look by and count guy would be in an 0-2 hole and the fishing away to breaking ball or or the fastball up or whatever it is you know, can you comment on that at all as far as, you know, those struggles and, and how they can like look to, to improve? Yeah. That? It, it, how to look to improve it. No idea. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not looking to throw my hat into the ring for next Mets hitting coach. Uh, <laughs> we might need um, you to. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're, you're right in that hitting with runners in scoring position, the biggest moments game on the line, they more often than not, than way more often, often than not, um, did not come through. And some of it's because of approach. And Luis Rojas was pretty openly critical. I give him props for that about, you know, some nights they were just not ready for breaking balls. They had a lot of problem with that. But then there were other times where mid-90s fastballs, which isn't that fast anymore, just got blown right by him. And it didn't really make a lot of sense why that would happen, you know, right down the middle or um, – you know, up in the zone where they should be able to get to it, things like that. And then the other piece of it is I do think there was a snowball effect where it got in there, they got in their heads collectively and put pressure on themselves to come through. And that just didn't help. There is a school of thought within modern baseball that clutch doesn't exist, but I don't buy that at all. And I think we see the opposite of that with the 2021 Mets where um, the mental side of the game is huge and you can't ignore that. Um, so that's, that's, I think a, a really big piece of it. Yeah. I, I think Tim kind of hit the nail on the head there too, is I think a lot of it, especially once they had struggled for two months, I, I think part of it was mental. I mean, this was a team that outside of Alonzo and Nimmo that was struggling as a team to hit. Um, there wasn't anyone hitting. I mean, Smith had a bad year. McNeil had a bad year. McCann had a bad year. Lindor had a bad first couple of months. So you're talking about multiple guys in your lineup, four or five guys in your lineup that were not playing well offensively. So, I mean, that also plays as a stressor on to other players too, because they know that they have to pick it up um, when you have that many guys in a lineup struggling. Um, yeah. There's obviously a mental part of it too. And uh you, you could see it weighing on the team and whether you, you like Chili Davis, don't like Chili Davis, like Hugh Quattlebaum, don't like Hugh Quattlebaum, changing a hitting coach in the middle of the season is tough. And then when you're changing a hitting coach that, like Tim said, speaks two different languages of hitting, makes that even tougher. Um, that's tough for the hitters to go through. And I do agree that we saw some of the guys starting to make adjustments. Um, Conforto looked much better the last couple of months. Lindor looked a lot better the last like three months. Uh, um, even McCann, um, the last couple of weeks of the season looked like he was lifting the ball once in a while, at least. Um, 
yeah, I, I think I think we'll have to see who the coach is, obviously, but some continuity um, throughout the organization. I mean, th- that's the biggest issue we're talking about as an organization as a whole right now is they need to get some continuity. And I think that's the same thing it is for the hitting coach. No, definitely. And, and Mike, you mentioned the guy, uh, Francisco Lindor, Tim, real quick. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on his first year as a Met and you know what, what you think and you know what, what Mets fans should be expecting now for what I think it's the next nine years. Now that the, the contract is done for, for the next 10 years, 10 years. Right. The right. contract extension extension is only about to kick in. Wow. Um, so it's, uh, what the Mets fans should expect better. I fully expect Francisco Lindor to be better in 2022 than he was in 2021. Brutal start, better finish, some weird episodes with the rat and raccoon thing, the thumbs down thing. I think maybe Lindor learned a little bit about the environment, the fan base, things like that, that he will carry with him into 2022. Um, so I would expect Lindor to be better and uh, better in every way, um, hitting, fielding, presenting himself, behaving um, in 2022. Uh, there was a learning curve there that I don't know that he anticipated, and I don't know that the Mets anticipated. And, uh, you know, that's what, it, you know, if you're going to have a down year, hopefully at least you can finish the learning curve so you can come out hot, come out strong the next year. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully for Lindor's sake, that's, that's what happens next year. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I agree. I, I, I've said it before. I, I get a lot of Carlos Beltran vibes as far as with Lindor, as far as his first year, you know, I think he needed some time to get used to New York and the market and being here, um, you know, had a down year. And then after that though, we, we know what he did. So, uh, I'm hoping yeah. that's the case. Uh, Mike, I just want to get your thoughts too on that. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty clear that uh, he had high expectations for himself. Match fans had high expectations. Um, I mean, three hundred forty-one million is a lot of money. Yeah, and then he came out like we talked about as the Mets offense as a whole. He came out and was in a hole for a long time, and that that's tough to get out of. But I think I think it shows you how good of a player he is that he was able to get out of that hole of the five hundred OPS for a while and finish over 700. And that's because Francisco Lindor is a really good baseball player. He's a top five shortstop in baseball. Um, So yeah, I expect him to be a five win player the next couple of years. He still showed that he's tremendous on defense. He showed um, that he's a vocal leader on the team too. So I think, yeah, I think going forward, this is a guy that we're going to, we're going to look back and laugh about his first year. Hopefully but I'm assuming so. <laughs> no, definitely. And, you know, I think the defense alone, you saw this year, even when his hitting was slumping, um, you know, he was, he was a great defender. He was a great leader. And, and, you know, until he got hurt, uh, you know, start of the second half, even though he struggled, the Mets won. Um, so I think he definitely makes a difference when he's on the field and, you know, expect some good things from him for years to come, hopefully. And uh, his buddy, uh, Javi Baez is uh, going to be for Asian at this, uh, you know, this winter, um, I wanted to talk to you, Tim, you know, about uh, possible free agent signings the Mets could maybe bring in um, maybe some trade scenarios that they can do. Obviously, it's all super speculative because we need someone to make these decisions. But I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, on what the uh, the Mets winter could look like on their winter plans, you said? Yes. As far as, you know, possibly signing uh, free agents or uh, trades that, that you think could could be on the horizon. Um, trades are harder to anticipate because you don't know who's available necessarily. 
you know, I, I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, shaking up the core and, you know, which of these controllable players aren't going to be back next year. Um, McNeil, Dom, J.D. Davis, um, some of these guys. And, I, it, you know, with those three guys in particular, I kind of put them in the same group because they're controllable. They're good hitters. And if you traded them now, you'd be selling low, which I'm not sure what the Mets want to do. But I'm also not sure. I'm not confident that they're all back next year. Um, so it, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of decisions to be made there. As far as the free agents, you know, starting with the Mets' own free agents, I think Syndergaard is back. That seems like a no-brainer. Conforto, maybe. It wouldn't surprise me if he accepts the qualifying offer, to be honest. And then, uh, you know, Stroman and Baez, the two guys who are not eligible for the qualifying offer, they're going to enjoy strong markets for their services. And, uh, you know, they're going to get big contracts. I, I do not expect either would give the Mets a discount um, just because they, you know, they're so, you know, it's not like they're homegrown players, you know, there's no hometown discount type thing there. Um, and I think, you know, some team somewhere along the way is going to give them a huge deal. So we'll see if the Mets come out on top in those discussions. I'm not sure which way that's going to go. Yeah. I mean, the, the Mets are going to have a lot of holes to fill. If Conforto leaves, you need a producer in right fields. If they trade, you know, if the DH comes, they're going to have to figure out what they want to do with Cano returning with maybe J.D. Davis getting some of those at-bats. If you keep Dom Smith, you have to decide You have to decide what you're going to do with Dom Smith because I don't know that anybody wants to put him in left field for another year for as competent, as fine as he looked in 2021. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of unknowns. The amount of change that could happen with the Mets roster is uh, significant. Uh, there's a wide range of outcomes, you know, they're going to need, they're going to need big pieces. No doubt about it. It's not, it's not fine tuning. It's, it's, it's much bigger than that. No, absolutely. And to your point, um, I saw an article, I think it was the other day and I forget who it was. Uh, so forgive me on that. Basically an article teasing that the Mets could try and re-sign Javi Baez while also bringing in Chris Bryant and the top flight starting pitcher. I know Steve Cohen has a lot of money, but this isn't MLB <laughs> the show. So I was hoping right. if maybe you can clarify that and maybe, you know, bring folks back down to earth a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't I did not see that. So I, I don't know which one you're referencing, but I think it would serve fans well to remember that for all of the money Steve Cohen has and for all of the money that I fully expect him to spend next year and beyond. This isn't fantasy baseball. Uh, so I that seems like I mean, that'd be a hell of a hell of a free agent class. Don't get me wrong. Once upon a time, the Yankees did sign Sabathia, Teixeira, and uh, whoever, whoever the other big – oh, Burnett maybe. Burnett, yeah, The big one that year. Yes. And I, I, I was – as a kid, I was stunned that they got all three. Um, so those things do happen once in a while, but I don't expect, you know, three premier free agents for the Mets this offseason. That seems like shooting high. Yeah, we've kind of talked about that too, Sal, already. Like, uh, I, I think you should keep the expectations somewhat realistic while also knowing that the Mets do have to have a lot of turnover. And I think kind of tying that into the president of baseball ops, this isn't a walk-in contender. You don't walk right into the 177 games this year, and that's with their second-best pitcher could be is a free agent their best player from the second half and Baez is a free agent. Conforto, their starting right fielder from for the last five years, could be a free agent. Noah Syndergaard could be a free agent. I mean, 
this is this isn't the team where you're just walking in like oh yeah we're just gonna fine tune it we're gonna sign a veteran starter we're gonna sign a bench hitter that type of thing this is this is a a job for a president of baseball ops or a gm that they're, they're gonna have to make a lot of moves a lot of decisions this offseason in the next month or so month or two that kind of long term decide the future of this team so it, it's it's not an easy it's not an easy job to walk into along with all of the other stuff we talked about so uh i think that that might be something that kind of plays the role into it too and yeah so i think between to wrap this all up between the front office between the manager between the coaching staff and between the roster this is has the potential to be when they start on opening day in 2022, a completely different looking organization. No, absolutely. And Mike, to the point you made it, you know, it's interesting as far as how they're not an instant contender. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think what fans probably need to, to, you know, make a distinction on is, you know, a $300 million payroll is a lot of money, obviously, but there's a difference between having a $300 million payroll when you're a piece or two away and you can really splurge having multiple pieces, you know, really feels like half a roster that you have to try and bring back on top of filling holes that you're going to have. So, uh, you know, it's very interesting. You know, I do think uh, Steve Cohen's going to spend a lot of money. Um, but again, like you said, this is a team that's going to have probably a lot of turnover and there's a lot of holes to fill. So, you know, you know, money's probably not going to bandage everything and it's going to be more so going to these organizations and, and bringing in good people and, you know, developing talent. And it seems like that's what Dodgers and the Rays do so well every year because it seems like they just have a whole farm of guys that come up and do well. Um, but, you know, transitioning off of all of that, there's a work stoppage looming um, December 2nd at midnight. Uh, I think we all know that, um, you know, the CBA runs out and this could be a really long winter. And that's just another added caveat to all this craziness with the Mets because it feels like they only have a month to do all this. Um, so, Tim, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the Lumen lockout, you know, the, the negotiations that are happening, you know, anything you've heard and, and what, you know, we should expect. The sense that I get from talking to team executives, to agents, you know, people on both sides is there probably won't be a new CBA by the time the current one expires. There probably will be some sort of transaction freeze or work stoppage or something to that effect, but it probably won't affect the 2022 season. People still expect there to be 162 games, full spring training, which, which is good, which is good. So we could be in a situation where December 2 comes, the hot stove goes cold. Everybody just kind of sits around for six weeks. Um, and then we have sort of a hockey or NBA style off season where everything, you know, they, they come the union and the league have a new CBA and then everything is crammed. Most of an off season is crammed into one or two weeks before people report to camp. Um, I think we could be looking at that type of situation, which to me, that, that sounds kind of fun, you know, sign, sign me up for that. <laughs> um, so it, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be tense. I'm hoping, you know, just as a baseball fan, not even somebody who's relies on baseball, but just as a baseball fan, um, I'm hoping the sides just come to their senses and figure it out. And, you know, one, don't bigger publicly, maybe. And then to uh, realize how good you all, they all have it. And, uh, you know, just figure it out. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like exactly. I'm not a labor guy. I'm not a labor expert. Um, but I'm believe there Absolutely. are. Absolutely. And if, if you, um, 
you know, have you heard like what the maybe the sticking points are going to be as far as like what they're really going to like, you know, be fighting now and hammering out for? I I, I haven't, but it's it's going to be all of the talking points that you've heard from the players in the union in recent years about service time manipulation and how long it takes to be a free agent, things like that. Tanking, the union despises teams that are just not competitive and openly not competitive, um, which we've seen a real problem with in the last decade or so. Um, Ever since the Astros and Cubs uh, had quite a bit of success with that philosophy. Um, So it's going to be all of those things, um, competitive balance, things like that. So nothing new. I don't think all the same topics we've been hearing about over and over. Yeah. I think, I mean, Tim's right about this too. Um, I think we do see a stoppage. Uh, I know Bill Madden reported that there's likely going to be a stoppage and that they winter meetings are already not happening. Um, the AP put out a story that they expected a work stoppage too. Um, I, I think we do see it. But like Tim, I don't, I don't think we see it even ex- extend into spring training. Um, baseballs they've already seen what missed games do to um, their pocketbook. They've seen what happens with the pandemic. They missed a lot of games and not being able to have fans and seats for games. So I, I don't think they want to go through any of that again. So I, I think this will get wrapped up before spring training. And yeah, it would be nice if we had a week that what the winter meetings is really supposed to be is just an insane week of transactions, which which could happen if this goes out into January and then uh, spring training starts in a month. So you want to get all those guys wrapped up. So yeah, that, I mean, in that sense, it would be fun to, um, assuming they get it wrapped up, to just have a crazy frenzy like that. No, it's interesting. And you know, you're talking about what Tim said, that there could be that week or two before spring training. If they come to a deal by then, it's a mad rush. Do you think with, with that all in the back of, especially with all the free agents, you know, the back of their minds, do you think like that that makes November even more of a, an important month as far as guys maybe trying to sign rather quickly before there's a lockout so that their winters are kind of, you know, at ease and like they could put themselves in a routine and know where they're going to be moving to that sort of deal. You know, that that that's my worry with the Mets not having anyone at the moment with that. Is yeah. that realistic or do you think that's going to be more they'll hold out? Most guys will hold out through the winter once something's signed, it'll be a mad rush. I think so. I think there will be some guys who take what they can get in November, but I think most guys and especially the top guys are going to wait it out. And really it's going to be the teams waiting it out because they're going to want to see what the collective bargaining tax threshold looks like. And they're going before the Dodgers or the Yankees, or the Mets, before they commit to going tens of millions above the current level, they're going to want to see what the new system is. It, you know, whether it's a completely new system or a tweaked version of the current system, teams are going to want to know about that before they make significant financial commitments. And if the teams at the top or near the current luxury tax threshold aren't playing yet for the biggest free agents, then I think that's just going to put a unofficial hold on everything until people know what the rules are. You know, you don't want to 
you know, you, you can't play the game if you don't know what the rules are. And so I think everybody's going to be pretty much waiting to see what the rules are. Last thing, Tim, we don't want to keep you here all night, but one thing I did want to talk to you about, um, obviously you, you covered the, the 2020 MLB season, you know, during the pandemic. I just want if, if you could, you know, tell us a little bit what that was like, you know, working and being a, you know, a, a, a beat reporter during all that covering sports through COVID. And if there's kind of anything now that's like changed, you know, with, with journalism and, and also being a beat reporter around the team because of COVID? It's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure it's a terribly interesting answer unless, you, you know, you're a journalism nerd or an industry nerd like me. Um, but, you know, having covered 2020 when there was no in-person access to players or team people, everything was on Zoom, that, that stuck. As a journalist, whether you cover baseball or a different sport or politics or local government, or courts, or whatever, whatever you cover, if you're a journalist, the most important piece is having access to those who you cover, especially if you're a beat reporter, because, you know, that's how you build reputations, develops, or build rapports, develop, develop sources, things like that. Um, and that's just impossible in a Zoom world. In 2021, things got a little bit better, because we were allowed to go on the field during, before the game. Um, so that allowed people to have one-on-one -on -one interviews, introduce themselves to players who they had not previously introduced themselves to. So things got better in that sense. But, you know, I, I think pretty much any anybody who covers a major league beat would tell you that the, the on-field access was not a good substitute for the clubhouse access. Um, during normal times, reporters are allowed to go into clubhouse before and after games, you know, with very uh, strict, you know, timeframes and minute allotments and things like that. Um, and without that during the pandemic, it was, uh, it was, it's, 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 it was much harder to talk to players. Essentially, you basically hoped that they would take batting practice on the field. And a lot of times in the case of the Mets, they didn't take batting practice or if they did take BP um, you know, it was uh, not the star players, let's say not the players you're most interested in talking to. Um, so then you're just, you're kind of stuck waiting for uh, you know, the relievers, you know, the relievers come out and play catch every day. They're, they're available. They're accessible. They, they walk right by. So uh, you know, shout out to Aaron loop and Edwin Diaz and Seth Lugo and those guys for uh carry more than their fair share of media responsibilities, I guess you could say this year, um, just by virtue of being around more. So well, the media access is part of what goes on in the CBA. Um, so we'll see what happens in the CBA. The union and the league have much, much bigger fish to fry than the media's 50 minutes in the clubhouse before the game. Um, so we'll see what the new system looks like uh, when we come out the other side of these labor negotiations. But, you know, well, what's what changed in the industry? Uh, we'll see what changes stick. Uh, I'm, ho I'm hoping Zoom goes away because that's just not a good way to interview people, um, except for when you're, when you're on a podcast. I think it's a great way to interview people on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you saw fewer beat writers traveling because of the Zoom thing. And uh, so I... You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that Newsday sent, continued to send me on the road throughout both seasons, 2020 and 2021. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping we can get back to normal come next spring. Definitely. And you guys heard it here first. The Mets took more.
Or batting practice, they probably would have hit the ball. <laughs> yeah, they did skip the a lot too. of days. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's actually interesting because take a home stand, for example. They played right. so many double headers. You don't take BP the day of a double header. You don't take BP the day after because you're just so tired. The day after that is like probably a day game because it's the series finale. And then like you mix in some rain and another double header. It's just like, oh my God, like these guys are never out here. Like, uh, I'm, my, it's my job to talk to baseball players and, and there are no baseball players. So uh, um, all of that, of course, comes with the caveat that my job is awesome. I love my job. Very fortunate to have it. And I, I get a kick out of uh, society being con- existing in such a way that I get paid to watch and write about baseball. So I fully realize how fortunate I am to be in this situation. So, uh, you know, first world problems or, or whatever people say. <laughs> I hear you. And, and we love listening, you know, reading your work. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. You're like the real life Ray Barone. If you're a, and everybody loves Raymond fan, if that's definitely <laughs> aging myself on that reference, but uh, now Tim, we, we really appreciate you take- that a lot. Definitely. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Hopefully this is a, uh, First of a few times now um, that we can have you on. And once the season starts, do some more. But uh, everybody checked him out on Twitter. Read his stuff on Newsday, please. He does a great job. And, and we really, really appreciate it again. And that wraps it up for this week. We'll, uh, we'll see you all next week. And until then, get mesmerized. Thanks again to Tim for stopping by. Tune in again next week as Mike and I continue breaking down all the latest in Mets land. Thanks. And don't forget to get mesmerized.